As Pastor Elizabeth alluded to, uh, we've been preaching our series on the patriarchs of the book of Genesis. So people of God, today as I read our scripture passage, uh, I want you to know I've been thinking a little bit this past week while at Montreat about leadership. How do you know a good leader when you see one? Is the leader the one among us who's the most successful? Should the leader be the smartest person in the room, the one that has the best education, who went to the best schools, has earned the degrees? Is the leader the person who's been around the longest, has seniority, knows all the ropes, all the insides and the outs on how things work? Is the leader the one who is the bravest? Is the leader the one who's the strongest? Uh, the one who will never be a pushover? The one who will stand up for, against injustice? Is the true leader the powerful one who commands respect over all the rest? Is the leader the one who's the kindest? The one who is admired and loved by everyone? That's my question. What is the measure of a good leader? Keep that question in mind as we listen to this story about Jacob this morning in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 33, and listen for God's word and God's promise to us this morning. Scripture says this, The same night that Jacob got up, he took his two wives, his two maids, his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he set them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck Jacob on the hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then Jacob said, the man said to Jacob, let, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so the man said to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob said, my name is Jacob. And the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but now your name shall be Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans, and you have overcome. Then Jacob asked the man, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you want to know my name? And then he blessed him. So Jacob went on to call that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was preserved. The sun rose up on him as he passed Peniel, limping, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites, the children of Israel, do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because God struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray for the one who preaches for his sins are many? Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, this morning, lean on us and let us lean on you. May something of what is said and done here, at least something of what is seen and done, seen and heard here, may it not be of me, may it not be of us here in this room, may it be of you and your promises, your promises in our lives, the things that you have done for us and the things that you would have us do for you in our lives and in this, your world, in your holy name, we ask this. Amen. 
Organized religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. That's a direct quote from a 2001 interview in Playboy magazine with one of the most infamous and awesome professional wrestlers of all time, Jesse the Body Ventura. Before there was Dwayne the Rock Johnson, before there was The Undertaker, before there was Bret Hart, before there was Randy Macho Man Savage, there was Jesse the Body Ventura. When I was a kid, Jesse Ventura was one of the coolest wrestlers on the scene. In the, in the ring, he was something of a villain. He used to say, win if you can, lose if you must, but always cheat because there are no dirty moves when it comes to professional wrestling. I didn't really know Jesse Ventura, though, as a wrestler, though. That was a little bit before my time. I knew him from action movies. He starred alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in two of my favorite films as a teenager, The Running Man and Predator. I had both of them on VHS stacked on top of my VCR, and I wore them out as a teenager. Jesse Ventura was a true strong man. He was a bodybuilder before he was a wrestler, and before he was a bodybuilder, he'd been a Navy SEAL in Vietnam. And then after his wrestling career and his acting career was over, he did the most amazing thing. He ran for governor of Minnesota as a third-party candidate, and against all odds, he shocked the political world and won on the Reform Party ticket. And he's the only candidate to ever win on the Reform Party ticket to this day, any office of governor. And that's made Jesse Ventura something of a political superstar. He, his tenure, though, was not without controversy. Uh, he made a name for himself as kind of being an independent, not just of Democrats and Republicans, but an independent of any authority that anyone might put on him. He thought of himself as something of an outside-the-box thinker. He considered himself free of theological constraints as well. In 2001, while he was still in office, a reporter from Playboy magazine asked him about religious faith. And he said he didn't have any religious faith. He said he didn't need any religious faith because organized religion is a crutch for weak-minded people. Jesse Ventura wasn't the first person to say that. That phrase, organized religion is a crutch, faith is a crutch, that's actually a, a, a pretty common criticism of what we do here, what we're doing right here, right now, this morning. It's not a new criticism either. It's, it's pretty old. You, you can find the same criticism in so many words in the works of Nietzsche, in the Enlightenment, in Roman philosophers who regarded their devout countrymen as superstitious. The idea is that religious faith is wishful thinking. You trust in pie-in-the-sky promises for people who can't quite handle the cold, hard facts of the world that surround us. I want to think about this criticism today for a minute because as I think about it, these critics are exactly right. They're right. Faith is a crutch for weak-minded people. Last time we met Jacob, he was at a crossroads. The crossroads was a place known as Bethel, which means the house of God. Up until that point, Jacob had been known 
for using dirty moves in life. He lied to his father. He cheated his brother. And then after all of his dirty moves, Jacob at Bethel received of all things a promise from God. You remember last week, one night Jacob dreamed of a ladder coming down from heaven and God appeared to him at the bottom of the ladder and told him this. God said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and your father Isaac. My promise to you is that your descendants are going to spread throughout all the land, north, south, east, and west. And all the peoples of the earth, all people on earth, are going to be blessed through your offspring, Jacob. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you right now on this day. As the episode goes, Jacob awakes from the dream a changed man. How could you not be changed? after receiving a promise like that. And for the next chapter of Jacob's life, that promise becomes his guiding star. This promise shines forth ahead of him and it lights his way. It shines back into his life and in every little situation that's placed before him in life, every little struggle, every little question he has, every little challenge he faces, he he finds the courage to put one foot in front of the other and keep moving towards that hope, towards that promise, that promise that is shining back on him guiding his way. Such as it is with the way of faith, isn't it? But that's not the end of the story. The story is never over after just one episode. So today, we meet Jacob two decades later at another crossroads in life. This time, the place where he finds this crossroads is called Peniel. It means face of God. At the start of today's story, Jacob has built a life for himself. In the intervening years, Jacob has gotten married to Rachel and to Leah. They've borne him 11 children, each of whom, of these 11 children, plus one more, will come in the centuries to come to be the namesake of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jacob has acquired cattle and wealth, and when he departed from Bethel 20 years earlier, he had nothing but his walking stick Today, he has two full camps worth of stuff that he has gained while walking that path of faith towards the promise of God. And as he looks back on the story of the last 20 years, he looks back on his life, even going before when he was a dirty, dirty cheat of his brother and his father, he can see a trajectory. He can see where God has been with him and guided him along the way through that promise. But at the point that we join Jacob today, he's looking ahead, not back. And as he looks ahead, it is starting to get harder and harder for him to see where this story is going next. It's harder for him to see how this promise is gonna work itself out. Because we find Jacob today, everything that he has made of his life, everything he has accomplished, everything he has built along the way, has fallen into jeopardy. God has told Jacob that after all these years, it's time for him to pick up and go home. It's time for him to head back 
and meet his brother. There's only one problem. His brother Esau wants to kill him, or at least has every right to kill him. And not just every right to kill him, Esau also has all the means to kill him. As Jacob approaches the river Jabbok, which is the the border of his brother's territory, uh, word reaches Jacob that Esau knows that he's coming and that Esau is coming out to meet him and with him is an army of 400 men. Jacob and his little camp do not stand a chance. Jacob can't see where all this is going. And this sends Jacob into a panic. I mean, how could it not? How could it not send you into a panic? Everything that Jacob has become, everything that Jacob has come to love, everything Jacob has accomplished up to this point is now in jeopardy. And this whole time, this whole time, Jacob has lived by the promise of God that God was going to use him to bless all the peoples of the earth, that God was going to be with him until the very end. And here, God has told him to turn and run directly into a death trap. What kind of God is this? Putting this in front of him. Is God foolish? Risking the very fruit of God's promise? Is God angry with Jacob? Is he finally being being punished for all those dirty moves he pulled years and years before? Is God unfaithful? Cruel? These are the questions that run through Jacob's mind. They're only natural questions, questions you maybe can relate to. Jacob does the only thing he can, which is he braces himself for his brother's wrath. He tells his families to go and cross the river and to batten down the hatches, and when the armies approach, surrender themselves and offer themselves to servants to Esau. And that night, though, Jacob stays behind, perhaps to pray. What else could you do? But the prayer isn't remembered as a prayer. That's not what happens. Frustrated, confused, distraught, what Jacob actually ends up doing is wrestling with God. The scriptures only imply that it's God. What the scriptures tell us is that a strange man shows up on the banks of the river Jabbok and he and Jacob grapple and fight and try to pin each other down all night long. And as the story goes, Jacob proves himself to be a fantastic wrestler. He goes round for round for round with this heavenly figure. And at one point, it even starts to look like Jacob is going to prevail. Jacob has got God pinned up against a rock. And God then strikes Jacob in the hip, leaving him in wrenching pain. Is that a dirty move? Maybe. But that's what you risk when you step into the ring because there's no dirty moves when it comes to wrestling. And the injury that Jacob gets is not trivial. For the rest of Jacob's life, he's going to walk with a limp. But even wrought with pain in his leg, Jacob refuses to let the heavenly figure go. I won't let you go until you bless me, Jacob says to God. You promised me, Jacob says to God. You promised me that you had a plan. 
You promised me that the world would come to be blessed through my descendants. You promised me that you would be with me until the very end. You promised me. And I will not let you go until you give me what you've promised. And so God asks Jacob, God says, what is your name? What a silly question for God to ask. God knows his name. You know my name, Jacob says. My name is Jacob. No, it's not, God says. That is not your name. Not anymore. From now on, you and your descendants are going to have a different name. A name that will carry out throughout all the centuries. And that name is Israel. Because what Israel means is he who has struggled with God and overcome. So when the morning comes, Israel, the one formerly known as Jacob, leaves that place, calling it Peniel. And he comes face to face with his brother. But as he approaches, he doesn't walk. He limps away, leaning on his newfound crutch. This is the thing, the critics of faith are not entirely wrong. They're right. Religion, faith, what we do here this morning is a crutch for weak people. A person of faith is a person who has to lean on something external to themselves in order to stay standing, in order to get around. But that's never the whole story. One episode never tells the whole story. What the, what the critics of faith often miss is that it's not just the crutch that the believer leans on. Faith is also the struggle. It's the fight. To engage in faith is not just to lean on God, it's to wrestle with God in that confusion and anguish and in doubt. You, you see, in, in my experience as a pastor, it's not that the person of faith hasn't grappled with the cold, hard facts of life. In, in fact, it's the opposite. Most often, the person of faith has been slammed in the face with the cold, hard facts of life. And this is exactly what has led them to realize just how weak they actually are. Just how ineffective you really are at getting around and standing on your own two feet. Just how deeply dependent we all have always been whether we want to admit it or not, recognize it or not, faith isn't just the crutch. Faith is the recognition that even the strongest of strong men comes to a point where they need a crutch. Such is the way of faith. 
And so, dear people of God, children of Israel, children of the one who has wrestled with God and overcome, I want to ask you again, how do you know a leader when you see one? Is the leader the one among us who's found the most success? Should the leader be the smartest person in the room, the one with the best education, who went to the best school, has earned the degrees? Is the leader the person who's been around the longest, the one with seniority, the most experienced, who knows the ropes inside and out? Is the leader the bravest, the strongest, the one who'll never be a pushover and let injustice stand? Is the true leader powerful, commanding everyone's respect? Is the true leader the kind one, the leader who everyone loves and admires and adores? You want to know the measure of a good leader, it's none of the above. If you want to find the leader, look for the limp. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask it. Amen.